Hi everyone, you're listening to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview investors to find out how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Enjoy the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview multifamily real estate investors and discuss how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Before we hop into today's show, I want to remind you of today's sponsor. This show is brought to you by PassiveInvesting.com. PassiveInvesting.com is a private equity real estate investment firm focused on institutional quality multifamily, self-storage, and express car wash assets in the hottest markets in the United States. PassiveInvesting.com partners with their investors to provide opportunities to build wealth together by delivering consistent monthly cash flow, capital appreciation, and strong tax benefits. They currently have 1,800 passive investors with a 65% repeat investor rate in their deals. If you're interested in learning more, head over to PassiveInvesting.com or click the link on the show notes. You can get more information on investment opportunities, educational webinars, or insightful articles. Reach out and see how they can help you build wealth in real estate. Now for today's guest. He is a real estate entrepreneur who has partnered with busy professionals to invest in over $100 million worth of apartments. He consults active multifamily investors to help them start or grow their business. He hosts the Multifamily Insights Podcast and is the co-creator of the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. And prior to becoming a full-time investor, he works in corporate America, overseeing marketing campaigns for big brand names like General Motors, Nike, and Coors Light. Please give a warm welcome to John Gasman. Taylor, thank you for that warm introduction. I'm excited to be here with you today and I uh, can't wait to jump into the conversation, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for you to be on to the show. And, you know, I actually wanted to ask a quick question because I recall your podcast was formerly called Target Market Insights. And so I was just curious just about the, the switch for that. Yeah, man. So the show is now Multifamily Insights. It was Target Market Insights. And really, it was done for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first is when I initially launched that show, it was rooted in finding the best places to invest and Mm. uncovering the insights to help you do that. So really, the show is all about market research. And while it was great information, it was also kind of really niche. And it was kind of limiting in the kind of things we wanted to get into. And I wanted to talk more about other ways to expand and grow, leveraging marketing, but really keeping it rooted in multifamily. So we kind of expanded it to multifamily insights where we do talk about whether you want to be a passive investor, we highlight some of those tips and strategies, whether you're an active investor, especially if you're looking to attract capital and attract investors for deals, we'll talk about things like that as well. So we talk about marketing, multifamily, everything in between. So we did uh, rebrand the show to multifamily insights to help us there. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And and so, you know, I wanted to take a take a little bit of a step back then and talk about your start into jumping into multifamily and what the transition was like. Because from my understanding, you actually started out with house hacking first. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. So I was in corporate America working a W2 job and uh, spent 15 years in corporate America. I enjoyed most of it. Uh, but early in my career, I was in Detroit. You mentioned some of the brands that I worked on. And uh, one of the early ones was General Motors and I actually worked for GM. So in Detroit at headquarters. Wow. And this was from 2007 to 2011. And really important time frame as we went through the economic recession at that time. And I was at GM when this happened. And I recall this distinctly, you know, looking at, you know, the news and watching my, my senior leadership and not just, you know, senior leaders that I didn't know, but I'm watching my director, you know, on TV, on CNN, talking to Anderson Cooper about the state of the business. And I just spoke to her like a couple hours earlier. And she basically told me, keep my head down, you know, everything be fine. And three hours later, I'm watching this on the news and she's like, hey, you know, if we don't sell 16 million dollar million vehicles as an industry, we're going to be forced into bankruptcy. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? So it was just a very wild time, as you can imagine. And the anxiety was through the roof. And you got to remember that at this time, we really didn't realize this was an overall economic issue. We thought it was just tied to the automotive industry. So it was just really stressful and a lot of different things going on. Obviously, when the the financial institutions suffered their issues a little later in that year, that's when this became a bigger issue and became a situation where like, whoa, you know, it's going to be tight for a couple of years. And all that's important to set up that I watched a lot of my peers get let go, multiple rounds of layoffs. And I actually did well. In fact, I thrived through that time period. I got promoted. I was, you know, named one of the best advertisers in the country. Um, you know, I was on a team with Buick and Buick became one of the fastest growing brands in America. We helped turn that brand around. So I had a lot of successes, but I watched what happened behind the scenes with my peers. Uh, there was a gentleman in particular who had worked for the company for 22 years, dedicated himself to the firm. He was a lifer, as they call him, and he got let go. And he had no plan B. And he left a voice message to everybody on the team. Uh, he was very distraught, obviously, and very emotional. And I recall listening to that message. And I remember feeling two things. One was empathy for him. Uh, again, imagine dedicating more than two decades of your career to a company, a big company, a company that is, you know, the kind of job people expect you to get and hold on to until you retire and being unceremoniously let go prematurely. So I could understand the, the emotions that he was going through. And the second was just that I just didn't want to feel like that. You know, uh, I didn't get too caught up in the job title, into what I was doing. And don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it, man. I was going to Super Bowl and Maxim parties and, <laughs> you know, hanging out on video shoots with 50 Cent. And uh, wow. it was fun, man. It was, it was a lot of fun. I had a fun job in advertising at a big automotive brand. Uh, and I was pretty young in my career and single. So there was a lot to like. but. I never got caught up in the fallacy that I was my job. You know, I knew I was getting those perks because of the title I held. And at any moment, somebody else might sit in the seat and John Casman himself was maybe a little less relevant. So it was really important to focus on how do you create this thing for yourself? And um, real estate came into play. Um, I remember reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad some years earlier. And a lot of people talk about Rich Dad, Poor Dad, getting them into real estate. And it absolutely played a role in me getting into real estate. But more importantly than that, there's a portion in the book where he talks about working to develop skills, not a paycheck, or not just to climb the corporate ladder. 
And that actually forced me to say, you know what, I've been here at this big automotive company. I've had some great success, but can I take this experience and leverage it for my own personal businesses or personal things that I want to do? And it was hard because where else am I going to get, you know, seven figure budget or not even a seven figure marketing budget, eight, nine figure media budget, seven agency partners. Like I'm not going to have these kind of resources. I need to be in a place that's scrappier that, you know, I'm not going to sell cars, 30, $40,000 vehicles. So like, how do I learn to sell, you know, a pack of gum or, you know, a drink of beverage, anything that's simple. So I actually made the transition to the agency world and moved hmm. to Chicago to do that. Uh, but part of it also was real estate in Detroit was just plummeting. And I felt like uh, being in Chicago would give me a better leg up. So that's what kicked off the house hacking and ultimately allowed me to get started. Wow. And so when you, I guess, moved over there and you're still working with the company, what was the time frame between like house hacking to then becoming full-time and just being a full-time investor? Slow burn, man. I, I think that's one thing is really important for everyone to know. You don't have to rush this and you listen to people talk and it's mm. like, oh, I did this first deal and I quit my job. Listen, that is crazy. You know, you don't want to just go out and quit. So for me, the goal and the reason I want to tell that somewhat long story of how I got into <laughs> it was to give you the proper context. The goal was not, hey, hate your corporate job, quit and go be real estate full time. No, I love what I was doing. I just didn't want to wake up one day and find myself unemployed with no means of being able to take care of my bills and take care of my family. So real estate was always about supplementing my income, not replacing my income. At some point that was going to change, but starting out, it was really about, hey, how do I make sure I can start to insulate myself just in case things don't pan out the way that they're playing right now? So I started with that house hack to kind of get that that first thing going, you know, stop paying rent, let someone else pay down the mortgage. And that was a great way for me to get started. And that was 2012. I didn't go full time in real estate until about six or seven years later, 2018, 2019 is when I went full time. So I had wow. about six or seven years of investing where, you know, it was building up. Now, keep in mind, I was one property. I didn't buy that second property for another two years, right? 2014 is when I bought the second property. And then 2016 is when I bought a third property and really decided to say, okay, now I want to lock in and focus. How do I build a portfolio? How do I make this a business as opposed to more of a hobby and just kind of something I'm doing on the side with my personal portfolio? Hmm. 2016, that's when I hired a coach. That's when I, you know, actually did some flip projects, which did not turn out as well for me. Um, but that's when I also started really scaling in the multifamily. So that was a really pivotal year to lock in, focus, and really start to scale the business. Now, when you hired that coach, and then from your experience in house hacking, were there, I guess transferable skills that you've learned within the marketing industry that really helped out your experience in, in this real estate game. And I'd love actually to differentiate from the single family side, then also even on the commercial real estate multifamily side and what, what sort of skills translated from the corporate side all onto, onto the real estate side. Yeah. So there are, and it took a while to figure out what some of those things were. So for me and my background, a lot of what I was doing in corporate was managing campaigns. When I was the client, 
it was, you know, people presenting ideas to us, you know, me looking at creative, figuring out whether I liked it, you know, what words I wanted to get changed, move this, you know, creative, whatever. Right. Uh, but then also looking at our media plan and making sure that it was sound, make sure we were targeting the right audience, make sure we we're communicating the right features to the right people at the right time. So making sure everything really came together. On the um, on the agency side, it was managing my teams, managing creatives, working with my mm-hmm. clients, understanding what their needs were. What did our message need to hit on? What did they need to be successful with their superiors? Right? Um, who are the key stakeholders, and what are they looking for? How do we appease all of them? So a lot of it was project management. It was uh, people management, uh, and making sure that we understood who we needed to serve so we could get something done. When it comes to real estate, it's a lot of similarities, uh, particularly if you're doing a flip project, right? Where you've got all these different moving parts. So project management, lining up contractors, lining up the you know inspections, lining up the electricians. A lot of those things are project management. And on the flip side, when you talk about larger apartment investing, particularly syndications, where you're working with passive investors, is make sure they understand what's going on in the deal. It's running the deal, running it with the, the operators, working with your contractors, your property managers, anybody who's involved in the asset management, but then also making sure you're communicating what's going on to your investors and anyone else who has a key uh, stake in the actual operation of the business. So that those communication skills are definitely transferable. The project management skills are definitely transferable. And I would say marketing too, understanding how do we expand this? How do I get in front of more people? How do we connect with the right people? Those skills are absolutely transferable, not to mention speaking. You know, a lot of times, uh, even when you're in marketing or you're in corporate America, you may have to get on a stage. You know, there's a lot of conferences, there's conventions. You know, when I was working on, with Miller Coors as one of my clients, we did a, you know, there's a huge dis, uh, distributor conference, you know, and I didn't have to speak, but I had to make sure that my clients were set up and ready to go. Same thing when I was in the automotive space. I didn't have to necessarily speak, but I helped, you know, look at the scripts that my uh, my leadership had to go on there on stage and, and present, make sure we were highlighting the right things, make sure we were working the crowd and knowing what they were looking for. Because that audience is very different than maybe, um, you know, the salespeople who are actually selling a product. You know, maybe that's different than a customer, you know, the person who's using the product. You know, these are people who want to see, hey, how are you going to grow my business next year? And that's different than, you know, that person who's actually buying the product and just wants to see what cool thing you're laying out. So just understanding the audiences, understanding what those key points are. And um, all that definitely helped me, I think, moving into the real estate space. Yeah, it's actually something that's really interesting that clicks in my head is when you we, with with this whole marketing background, you're really just trying to get an understanding of the entire picture and what different funnels and levers are being pulled towards this entire picture. And so when you bring up uh, you know, market insights, target market insights, understanding that market and understanding just what's the uh yeah, what the what these levers are pulling, what these economic drivers are pulling, just to try and find the best market that you're looking into. And, you know, I was wondering if you could dive into that just a little bit more about, you know, when you were trying to analyze that, that best market, what, what, what did you look for and, and how did your marketing sales help, help along with that? Yeah. My very first deal. I mean, listen, like anyone else doing their first deal, you're going to be a little nervous, right? So right. the anxiety is a little high. You can read all the books you want. You can talk to other people you want, but when you're ready to pull that trigger on that first deal, you're a little nervous, right? And there was one thing that gave me some solace. And in Chicago, where I lived at the time, there were 77 neighborhoods, stillers, uh, 77 neighborhoods. 
out of the 77 neighborhoods, only one didn't lose value during the economic recession. And that stat just jumped out to me. I was looking through all these neighborhoods and I saw that stat and I was like, wow, you know what? I don't need to do any more research. <laughs> We're just going to confine our search to this one neighborhood. And that was it. That's what I did. I looked at properties in that neighborhood. I kind of stuck to it. I understood, you know, where does this neighborhood end? Where does it start? All that stuff. And we found a property in that neighborhood. So that worked out great for us. We did really well in that first deal. On a second deal, again, nothing quite as uh, obvious as far as where to go, but from living in the city, working in advertising, talking to other people, talking to my colleagues, my coworkers, hey, where do you live? Where are you moving to? I got a pretty good sense of the areas that people wanted to live in. And, um, you know, there was one area called Logan Square, which is a very popular neighborhood now. It was kind of growing in popularity back then, but just adjacent to that was an area called Avondale. And Avondale was a little lesser known, but it had all the characteristics of Logan Square. And the pricing was a little more favorable for both renters and buyers and investors mm. like myself. So I actually went to Avondale as my next investment because I assumed that, you know what, people like this area, but they're going to be people who want a little bit of a discount. And if they go just a little further west, they'll really like what this area has to offer. And I also found a great deal in that area. So that worked out well for us. We did a similar approach when we were looking at our eight unit property and other deals that we did in that market. For me, what happened was when I started to look outside of Chicago, when I needed more cash flow, when I wanted to partner with other investors, I didn't have that same intuitive approach where because I've been talking to so many both renters and residents, as well as other investors from going to meetups and all those kind of things, I didn't know those markets. And when I would talk to people, it was all anecdotal and there was no data. And I felt like, hey, I can't, I'm not here. I'm not in that city anymore. So I can't rely on my first person research that I've done, right? Unsophisticated, but you know, you talk to a hundred people and you get a pretty good sense of your head of where to go. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that. And now I'm talking to people in a different city. And some people are saying, oh, the West Sides were great cash flow. And some are saying, hey, you're gonna stick to the east side, don't go west of you know 71. <laughs> and I'm like, but why are you saying that? Because I don't know what lens you use to make these justifications. And then I'm also talking about a city where most people primarily buy as opposed to rent. I mean, Chicago, almost everyone rents, right? You can make $100,000 and you're still renting. So it's different in a city like that than when you come to, say, a Cincinnati, where if you make that kind of money, you're probably buying a house. So I can't trust the lens they're putting on the things they're saying. And I had to really get more sophisticated in how I was looking at these neighborhoods and these submarkets. And that led me to launch Target Market Insights so I could really talk to other investors who are investing in other markets and ask them flat out, what data points are you looking at? What what matters to you? What doesn't matter to you? Um, You know, I know there are people in Detroit who are killing it and crushing it. And there are people who are in major growing cities who are struggling. So what are the key factors that I really need to pay attention to? So that market research became critical for me to get comfortable investing in other markets. And it allowed me to put together kind of a criteria and a blueprint that we still follow to this day. 
And I love that you use it as a tool to to gain your own market knowledge for your for your own investments. And you know, when I started this podcast, it was all about really just trying to learn more from the industry and just gain a lot of knowledge from these from these experts that are doing what I'm looking to try and do. And you know, something that you mentioned with the the key factors that you were looking at, I was wondering if we can dive into some of those key market factors that you were looking at that these investors were looking at, and some of them that they liked some that they didn't like. Absolutely. So one of the first ones is population growth. That's a pretty common one, a pretty popular one. And for good reason, right? At the end of the day, you want to go to a market that's growing because you want more people to be looking for your apartments than less people. Um, All the factors we're going to get into, they really come down to one thing, demand right? I want future demand to be higher than it is today, right? That's all we're looking for. And we're looking at population growth. I'm looking at job growth. I'm looking at diversification because what happens if, uh, again, I was in the automotive industry, right? I was in Detroit when this took place. I saw what happened when the automotive industry struggled. You know, everybody suffered. It didn't matter if you were a teacher, right? Completely isolated from the automotive industry, but you suffer because the city itself was so reliant on the automotive industry that it impacted every single sector. And you want to be in an, in an area that has a diverse economy so you don't have one industry wipe out the, the entire community, right? On right. a greater scale, you don't want to be in a small market or a small city where there's really like one or two big employers, right? What if they close that plant? And, you know, these employees have nowhere to go now. Well, what happens if that happens, right? Well, the city suffers. You get less tax dollars. People move because the schools get crummy and, you know, maybe crime shoots up and you get markets like, you know, no offense to anybody, but like Gary, Indiana, where, you know, once a thriving city, um, a lot of the dollars have been pulled away and the resources have been pulled away. And it's tough for that city to um, get things going in a way that it used to be. And that's not a knock on any city. I'm just looking at pure data and understanding what ramifications could take place. So when you're looking at markets, you want to understand those kind of things. Who are the employers? Is it diverse? You know, what happens if a big employer walks away? Is the entire city going to collapse? Or does it not really matter because there are seven or eight other major employers in that area that are in different industries? So it's unlikely for all seven or eight of them to collapse at the same time, right? Hmm. So those are the kind of things. And if it does, it's going to happen everywhere across the country anyway. So, you know, at that point, it's a crapshoot. So it's doing things like that that you're kind of looking for. Um, You also want to look at things like how easy is it it to do business? Um, You know, are they incorporating? Are they um, facilitating the process for more business? to come there? Are they making it easy for people to open up shop or are they making it really difficult? It's a lot of red tape. People don't want to come there and open up jobs. So are they welcoming that? Are they providing grants? Are they providing, you know, other perks for companies that create new jobs in this area? That's something you want to look at. And then ultimately, how easy is it to be a landlord or to own and manage property? Uh, Is it easy to, you know, evict, not that we want to be evicting people, but what's that process like if you do unfortunately fall your, fall into a situation like that? Uh, is it landlord friendly? Is it tenant friendly? Uh, is it fair? 
You know, those are the kind of things that you want to look for uh, at a macro level. And then on the micro level, at the sub-market level, I'm looking for those areas where there's some growth. There's something that's taking place where there's some new energy coming into an environment. And a lot of this is actually what I was doing in Chicago. I just didn't quantify it. I didn't have the numbers to show you to say, here's why I'm investing here, right? I could tell you based on my gut, but my gut was through a ton of research. I just didn't quantify it. And a lot of that stuff is the same, right? So we want to look for, you know, um, again, what's going up there? What's going to be a driver for a submarket? Great. You picked Atlanta or Dallas or Orlando or Kansas City or whatever city you like. That's great. Now the real work comes into but where in those markets? And you want other people to do the heavy lifting. I want the government to do some heavy lifting. I want some infrastructure. I want um, you know uh, big employers, schools, universities. I'm looking for someone else to do some of that heavy work to develop or redevelop an area. And then for us in our strategy, we like to focus on areas where there's already a pretty big groundswell already. And we're just coming in and adding a little something to that. And so I was I was going to ask then for the type of assets that you're going after, does that also influence the type of submarkets that you're looking for as well? Because I mean, some are arguably there's more C-class assets versus, you know, the brand new development that could be just right downtown or in, right in on the west side. So does did that also influence your market research as well when trying to decide some of the submarkets for for your strategy and business plan? Well, I think you got to learn the game before you can really dig deep into your submarket plan. But yes, mm. I mean, it absolutely does. Because now once you have all that information, it's like, okay, great. Now let me go shopping. Well, if you're shopping for a class A, you know, high-end luxury type property, well, guess what? People already know those areas. You're not going to get ahead of the curve, you know, doing something like that, which is fine. There's nothing right or wrong with that strategy. It's just saying that now you have to put in kind of the human element of like, yeah, John, you're not the first person to think about this, right? So <laughs> there are other people who have thought of this and there's yeah. reasons the data is where it is. So now it just comes down to what are you looking for? Uh, we personally like B-class assets. I do like, you know, from B- minus up to B+, plus. I think it's a great sweet spot. Um, there's some great stuff with A-, minus. there's some good stuff with C+. Plus. We will certainly explore those opportunities, but we just found B to be a really strong, strong place for us. So we do like those assets. So when you're looking at B assets, you're talking about areas that have, you know, a pretty stable economy, uh, pretty diverse, uh, more working class, but still desirable, good schools, things like that are what we look for. So a lot of times these are not places that are, um, you know, not discovered. People know that they're there. So for us, it's more about what's our business plan and how do we make sure that we can take advantage of the market. And where, which markets are you currently investing in right now and focused on? Yeah, primarily in the Midwest and the Southeast. So Louisville, Kentucky is one of our core markets. I live in Cincinnati and like this market a lot. Uh, we do love Indianapolis, Columbus. Uh, we don't own anything in those two markets. We love them. <laughs> we keep looking in those markets. Uh, and then the Southeast, we like to partner with other operators who have a presence there. So we've got some stuff in the Carolinas, actually with the Passive Investing Group. Um, you know, We've been in Texas. We love the Texas market. We do like the Florida market. And we like Georgia a lot as well. Mm, yeah, no, Georgia's, Georgia's definitely on fire. We just got under contract and won over in Savannah. And that was a Savannah, Atlanta. It's, it's, a, it's a great place. And so I'm, I'm curious then as, you know, I, at the time that this is probably going to be released, it's 
probably going to be released within a little bit of time from now, but I feel like it's still going to be a conversation that's going to be happening across all the different operators. And I get this question all the time with inflation going up and interest rates going up. I'm curious how that is affecting uh, your strategy and your outlook on the type of assets you're, that you're going after and you know, investors' ex- expectations as well. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a believer that you should maybe tweak your approach. You shouldn't be making wholesale changes. If you've got to make a wholesale change, you probably don't have the right strategy, right? So um, for us, it really doesn't have a big impact. Um, I will say one thing we're paying more attention to is our loans um, and making sure we understand what our exit plan is. Um, you know, how are we stacking everything based on that business plan? Uh, so that's something that we're paying attention to. But, you know, the thing about it is it's easy to look at interest rates and say, oh, interest rates are going up. We need to do something. What we really need to pay attention to is demand. I don't think I, I, I know I haven't seen a change in demand for multifamily yet. You know, we're looking at um, inflation being at an all time high, a 41 year high as of, you know, what I've seen more, most recently. So inflation continues to go up. I just read a report the other day that said, even though 2021 was a crazy number for rent growth with, the, you know, the highest we've seen in a long time, 2022 is actually on pace to beat that. So wow. with rent growth continuing to skyrocket with, yes, you have interest rates going up, but inflation is going up as well. People need a place to park their capital and cash flowing, recession resistant assets, inflation fighting assets like real estate are great places to put your capital. So people who have been sitting on the sidelines recognize that, you know what, I'd rather put it in real estate, get some solid returns then keep it in the savings account or wherever else they're, they're keeping their money today. And demand is strong. You also have to keep in mind that this is a global economy. This is not just us and the numbers we've had before. And I will tell you this, there's a flaw that I see a lot of people make, and I'm not an economist. I will never pretend to even get close to that. <laughs> but people love to look at data and they don't focus on what's changed since those trends or those data points came out. And one of the biggest differences is you have, you know, the Jobs Act, which made it allowable for smaller groups and sophisticated investors to get in deals that they couldn't get into before. You add that with, you know, the global adaptation of the internet and global investing and cryptocurrency. And you basically have a ton of people looking to park capital and very few assets to do it. Add on the pandemic where, again, you have people in different countries who don't know what to do with their money, don't trust their local governments, people in Australia, Canada. Uh, we've got you know the war in Russia and Ukraine. You've got people who are looking at their money saying, do I want to keep this in my home bank or do I want to put it somewhere where it's backed by a secured asset? So I think you factor all of those things in. And I have not seen demand for multifamily commercial real estate drop just yet. I think residential is a whole different story. That's not the same because that's more about sentiment. And I do think you're going to see sentiment change with residential real estate. And I think some of that will have an impact on on multifamily. But again, if you have less people trying to buy single family homes, 
they're probably going to rent or they're going to combine households. Right. right. So again, I just, I'm not seeing the, the immediate change. I think it will happen over time. Um, but I, I'm not seeing anything. I don't think interest rates are going to make people decide that they are, are happy keeping their money in stocks or in a savings account or a bond or whatever. Um, you know, interest rates going up just a, a couple points. I don't see how it's going to have that huge of an impact just yet. Yeah, you know, it's it's you know, I, I think in the long term, especially de- depending on the type of assets that you're that we're going after, you know, we're going after very similar assets. I think in the long term, it's still going to equate to higher property values, higher rents, just because of that huge gap between supply and demand. And I think that's also so, uh, something interesting that you pointed out too was the difference between residential and commercial. Because whenever I tell somebody that I'm in real estate, they're like, oh, the housing market's gonna gonna crash. Or hey, can you sell my house? And I'm like, I am not even <laughs> nowhere near that side of side of real estate. And so if there is somebody out there that is listening that is waiting for the market to crash, what advice would would you give them uh, in in yeah to 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 beat in, to try and beat inflation? You know, again, I don't I'm not an economist, I don't have a crystal ball. Um I wouldn't wait for something to happen. I, I don't think that's a good strategy. Think about it like this. And I think this goes back to what are you trying to do? If you're trying to create a business, real estate's the only industry I've, I've ever seen or heard of where people think it's okay just to wait. Like, could you imagine being Nike, right? You make shoes, you're Nike, and you're like, you know what? Inflation is getting kind of high. Let's stop all production. Let's stop selling shoes. Let's wait for the market to drop so we can buy materials much lower. We're not going to produce anything for the next two years. We're going to just wait for the market to drop. No, they would never do that. Real estate's the only space where people expect everything to drop at some point and wait. And I get it. You want to buy low and sell high. I understand the philosophy. But what has been proven over and over is a more prudent approach is to always be buying. And if you buy with a conservative strategy that allows you to dictate when you sell and you have proper reserves, you should be okay. Now, again, it's not a guaranteed. I'm not an expert. I can't give you that kind of advice, but we don't have a crystal ball. I know people who have been literally I know people who have been waiting for the market to drop since 2016. So. Yeah. So that's six years that they've missed out on basically the one of the biggest growths we've seen uh, in commercial real estate. And not just that, but what's the opportunity cost? So you you what held it in cash, you put it in a you know a, a money market account, um, and you got what a one, two percent return for the last six years um, because you're waiting on the market to drop. I just don't get it. You know, I mean, for me, it's like the value of a property only matters on two days, the day you buy it, the day you sell it. What matters is whether or not you can cash flow all the days in between. That's what matters. But if you can control the day you sell it, you know, I think you have a lot more power in that approach than trying to time the market or waiting for the market to drop. It could drop. I think it's likely that it's going to take at least a dip or some sort of correction in the next few years here. But how big, how major? I don't know. And I think as long as you can hold on to your properties and sell when it makes sense for you to sell, it, it won't wipe you out and it may not have the impact you're, you're thinking or you're fearful that it may have. 
Yeah. And you know, I, I really love that Nike analogy. I've never thought about it like that. And I know that we're always just talking about business and real, I mean, real estate is a business and you know, if I, I just love that insight and that analogy that, that you use. Think about it, man. It is sense. there any, <laughs> is there anything else in the world that people would just stop and say, Hey, I know I'm in business of doing this. We're just not going to do it. We're not going to sell products. I'm going to stop, you know, cleaning houses. Hey, I know plumbing costs have gotten crazy, man. We're not doing any plumbing today. We're not building anything. Like there's nothing else where people would just completely shut down their business because they're concerned with the market. Yeah. No, that's, that's great insight. And so, you know, now moving forward then and for the rest of the year, I'd love to know what your main focuses are for, for 2022. And then, you know, I guess even for the, in the long term as well, where are you trying to go? Where are you trying to head? What are you, what are your goals? Yeah. I mean, for us, it's helping more investors. You know, we're looking to continue to grow and get in front of more people sharing what it is that we do. Uh, We do like the Midwest, as I said, so it's a little bit different than what maybe some of the other folks you talk to are are looking at. Uh, But we do like the Southeast region as well. And for us, it's the balance of cash flow and appreciation. Kind of going back to what we just talked about. If you can get pretty good cash flow, you're a little less concerned with the ebbs and flows of the market because you can just sell when it makes sense to sell. Um, That's a key important factor for us is trying to make sure we kind of stay in the driver's seat there. It doesn't always work out that way, but it is something that we are very acutely aware of. And we try to pay close attention to that whenever we're developing a business plan. Um, But it, it, you know, the markets we're in are less susceptible to wild swings Market conditions obviously change all around, but as we looked at the data, we looked at historicals, you know, we like kind of, you know, a little more boring, I don't want to say sleepy, but markets that are not as sexy, right? It's, it's the stuff that doesn't get everybody excited. You know, we're not talking Orlando and, and Tampa's and, and Phoenix and uh, DFW, nothing wrong with those markets, but we have to look at it and say, can we compete with everybody that's out there? You know, and once you start competing with everyone who's in those markets, it gets a little tougher to find that gym versus, again, the Cincinnati's and Louisville's of the world. Um, You know, we can find decent deals there. We can find pretty good cash flow there. And the people who we're competing with really want to be in those markets. Typically, they're not just coming in because it's super hot and, you know, they've got some 1031 exchange money or they got some East Coast or West Coast money. We're, we're typically, you know, finding markets where people want to be. And for us, that gives us a little bit of flexibility as well on the exit. So if the market stays hot, great. We're happy to sell, you know, early to somebody who wants to pay, um, you know, a premium for the property. But if not, you know, we, we, hope, we hope to be in a position where we've got good cash flow and, um, you know, we can still deliver what we need to do for our investors. Got it. And if people want to get a hold of you and learn more about you and your group and learn more about your investment opportunities, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, man, a couple of different ways. One, I would tell you to check out the podcast called Multifamily Insights, anywhere you listen to podcasts. The second thing is check out our sample deal. You know, whether you're an active investor or a passive investor, there's some value in this sample deal package we put together. Um, one, it'll help you wrap your head around, you know, deal structure and maybe some of the things to look for. We talked about the markets, what we like about a market. So I think that could be very helpful for you to understand as well, as well as just to understand like, hey, you know, here are the kind of things you want to be looking for, the kind of questions you want to ask. You'll also get added to our mailing list. We'll give you some key, you know, little tidbits on what to look for whenever you're reviewing a deal package. And, uh, you know, you can set up a time to chat with me if you want to do that as well. But you can go to kasmancapital.com slash sample deal to uh, check that out. 
out and get added to our mailing list. Cool. And that'll all be in the show notes. Unless you're taking notes, that's cool too. And you know, you're good. Kudos to you for taking notes. Thank you, John, for hopping onto the show. I appreciate it. You added so much insight, uh, insight, you know, target market insights, multifamily insight uh, to our show and to our audience. And I can't wait for the action items episode coming out on Friday. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you again, John, for hopping onto the show and I'll see you next time. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you got any value out of the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you leave a rating and review on iTunes to help others receive that same value. If you're looking to learn more on how to passively invest in apartment buildings or self-storage assets, click on my link in the show notes to learn more. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.